Wow, that's like four weeks in a row. I know. Three weeks in a row, four We're weeks on a in a row. Streak. I'm feeling hot. <laughs> Probably because we just forgot in the garage. Welcome to episode 26 of the Strength and Success podcast, the first and only podcast recorded live where you can interact and ask questions, often imitated, never duplicated. So you have Riley Prisnell with me. Hi. Hello, I am Trevor, <laughs> Trevor Jaffe. You're on my Instagram, you should know that, but I have to do it anyways because people record this and listen to it on Monday. So the podcast is live right now. You guys are able to drop questions below in the podcast. Of course, we release the podcast every Monday as well that you can listen to it. If you can't stay on the whole time here, that's fine too. We appreciate all of you who share the podcast every week and who appreciate it. That's really awesome of you. This is episode 26, Rewards for Results. Thank you for not putting me on the spot and asking <laughs> what the title was. It's more fun to do that though. Because I almost forgot, as even though we just talked about it. Uh, yeah, prep brain is in full effect, so I'm pretty tired. Um, my body is tired. I'm ready to lift heavy, though. Yeah. <laughs> um, granted that I have to make weight and she has to make weight. This is the first time we've competed together and we both have to technically make weight, although um, I'm fairly used to it. This is Riley's first like cut. Normally, she would just go into a meet and walk in. Granted, she only has five pounds to drop between now and then, which is not a lot. It's pretty simple. It's just a water manipulation. But you start really tracking and monitoring your, your carb intake and, and your calorie intake, and you start noticing you fatigue a lot faster when you're training. Uh, she just died out on JM breaths. <laughs> yeah, which never, which like never happens to me. Like halfway through a set. I like never get that bench wall like that. And I was like, wow, this is what, I'm glad I asked you for a spot. Because I, yeah. I was like, yeah, sure, I'll take one. I'll take a lift off in a spot yeah. and then just like rep four. <laughs> yeah. That's it. Rep five. Rep Give me a little, <laughs> give me a little credit Okay, here. you got four, crash on five, out of a set of seven. I see there's a question up there already, but we're going to get to something that's important. And we were talking about this on one of our walks. We have like these, you know, pontification moments and life reflection moments when we walk every night. We walk about two and a half miles every night as long as the weather permits. If not, we just circle the house until it rains on us and or run Target. back in. Or Target or Walmart, yeah. We've been known to literally walk around Walmart to get our steps in because we don't want to miss it. But rewards for results. Um, this is really important to me. A lot of people will focus on the end goal and that's it. So it becomes very daunting, very overwhelming, and very stressful. They don't know how to reward themselves along the way so they enjoy the process. Mm -hmm. And where this really comes down to is rewarding yourself for proper time management. Mm -hmm. What I say by that is, let's say, and I'll make it a really easy example. Let's say there's a show on Netflix that you love to binge watch, like people love The Office or I know Seinfeld's on there now. But let's say there's something like that you love to binge watch and you know that binge watching it keeps you from doing what you have to do. That becomes the result. So if you follow along the program, and we talk about this all the time, having your task list or to-do list, if you've knocked off all of those first, that's more time for you to watch one episode or two episodes. So in giving yourself a timeline, let's say if I knock all this off by 6 p.m., I can watch two episodes tonight as a reward. Now you're treating yourself to what you love and rewarding yourself for the work you're doing, which facilitates the goal along the way. It could be that small, people don't understand that. Instead of I can't do this, I can't do that, I can't do this, and then you dread the process. Mm -hmm. If you're hating the process, it's because you're not rewarding the work along the way. It's really important to recognize those steps and reward yourself for it. And there's, a, sometimes it's not always a great way to do this. Like let's say if your goal is a weight loss goal, if I lose 10 pounds, I'm gonna eat a piece of cake. That's kind of taking a step backwards. Yeah. If I lose 10 pounds, it should be more like, I'm gonna buy a new bathing suit that I look great in. That should be more of the positive reinforcement, positive result, I'm sorry, results reward. I choke on air, I talk fast, we all know that. Um, so it's one of those things where it's important to us, especially when we're working with athletes, we always talk about recognizing your results 
but also rewarding yourself for those results because you are working for them. You've earned them, appreciate that, and reward yourself for those results, but come up with timelines and goals and not just the end goal. Yeah, I mean, a reward can be as simple as like celebrating that small goal. You mentioned like the, um, the TV shows. Like we pretty much do that most, I would say probably like five out of seven nights we'll end up watching something. And that's because we have finished all of our work for the day. Um, we finished our, you know, like ate our final meal. We did our walk. We got people answered and everything like that. And then it's time to like unwind. Mm-hmm. And that's like our unwind time. Like that was agreed. a big deal for me because I was like super anti TV. Yeah. Like TV keeps me doing everything. But now I've learned that if I get it done in time, I can enjoy that aspect. Yeah, and, and that's, it's that is like our a, unwind. It's an unwind thing. Like right now, we're watching like an American barbecue show, and uh, that was like what we watched last night before bed. And Nothing we like, can eat is what we unwind with. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So it's a uh, it's nice because then you don't you don't you're not stuck thinking about, you know, you're going, you're not going to bed only thinking about work, right? Mm-hmm. So you get a chance to think about something else. So that's nice. But I'm a big fan of stepping stone goals is what I feel like they are. Um, and like, we can all get kind of caught up in this and I've kind of gotten caught up in this and it has taken me <laughs> up until yesterday. So yesterday I hit a lifetime PR uh, deadlift at 485. And the last time that I hit 480, I was 186-ish pounds, and yesterday I was 153. Um, For the longest time between that moment up until, uh, between the 480 moment up until the 485 moment, in between that, I was probably chronically pissed off at myself that I couldn't hit 480 again. And I was totally ignoring the fact that, like, I rapidly lost about 20 pounds when I moved to Florida. Um, when I moved from Chicago, I was weighing in about the 186. And then when I moved to Florida, uh, about two years ago, almost two years ago, um, I got down to 165, kind of like no problem, mostly from the stress of the move and like being so busy that I'm one of those people that if I'm busy, I forget to eat versus someone who is a stress eater. I've who's never a stress had eater. That problem. Yeah. <laughs> I will forget to eat if I'm busy because I'm very, uh, I'm very like one track focused. So when I'm focused on something, I don't think of other things. So for the last two years, I've basically been two and a half years, I guess. I've been really annoyed with myself that I haven't been able to get back to that 480 range. Right. Uh, I gotten very close. Like uh, last combat, last year at Surge, my third attempt was 485 at and I competed at 165. I pulled 463, no problem, and then 485, I got it just below my knee and then I gave up. So I have been annoyed with myself and deadlifts for two years, rather than recognizing the fact that like, um, you know, I pulled 465 beltless at 155 pounds or whatever I weighed when we were traveling, you know? So I ignored all of those small stepping stone goals and it made me constantly frustrated. And then when I finally hit the goal that I was looking for, yesterday, I realized like all the progress I made along the way because I put it in the fact of like, oh, I just hit a five time, uh, five pound lifetime PR weighing 33 pounds less than what I did previously. Right. So to the lifters that I coach, I always talk about like those small, like stepping stone goals where I'm like, okay, yes, this isn't your ultimate, you know, squat 300 goal that you want, but it's 285 and it's more than you did before and it looks better than last time or whatever. So I'm a big fan of trying to find the win from every session. 
And even if the reward is just like being proud of yourself for a second, because I think a lot of us lose that too, is like we are so hyper-focused on the big goal that we forget to be proud of ourselves for the small ones along the way. And sometimes that's all the reward you need. You don't, it doesn't need to be anything tangible. Like it doesn't need to be, you eat a piece of cake yeah. or you watch a TV show. Sometimes you can just be like, damn, I'm really proud of myself for doing that. And that is like a I've little bit more, this. yeah, that's yeah. a little bit more powerful to me than earning a piece of cake or watching a TV show or a new pair of shoes, even though I like shoes. I may be wearing a new pair of Vans that Riley got me for I no also. reason. And she also may be wearing a new pair of Vans that she justified because it's donating money to Wildlife Protection Fund or something. Yeah. They're, they're cat-like striped. It's pretty cool. <laughs> Tiger. Yeah. Um, the, the path to success is a ladder, not a road. Yeah. And that's what people need to understand. And you want to reward yourself with each rung you've climbed instead of just that long journey road that you see nothing but the, I have miles to go. So if you manage to give yourself a reward every rung along the way, just make sure it's a positive reward. You'll recognize the progress rather than just see the end result being so far away. It shrinks the gap from the long-term goal to the short-term goals. Mm -hmm. That really is what helps get people success along the way. Um, a lot of people have jumped on and off here. I know there was a question up top, so I'll try and jump to that first question first, because remind you guys, you can, you can drop and ask questions here. Uh, any tips on managing fatigue? I started more physical work and my body feels trashed always. That's a great question. Um, so managing fatigue comes down to a few things. It's gonna come down to your sleep schedule and hygiene, which cannot be under stress. We sell a good night product for that reason is so people can manage their sleep. Our best recovery is when we're relaxing and in, into our, our parasympathetic nervous system, when everything is calm. That's when cortisol's at its lowest, that's when our body's repairing or doing things. So if you've started a job that's more active, you need to make sure that you are getting to bed earlier and not having distractions before bed. You literally have to give yourself a bedtime. I have a bedtime. My phone every night at 10.20 reminds me that it's bedtime. <laughs> I'm gonna be 42 years old, my phone reminds me when it's bedtime. It does that for a reason because it shuts everything off after that time so I can't go online or answer people and do things. It helps me maintain that sleep schedule, that sleep hygiene. So the first thing is managing your sleep. You probably need more than you think you have, especially as your job got more active. So if you're in bed for like from midnight and you're up at six, that's not enough. You know, that means going to bed at 11 so you can get that seven hours of sleep. And then making sure your sleep is the best possible by making the room cold, making the room dark, uh, avoiding blue lights before bed for an hour or so so your body knows it's time to calm down and so forth. The second thing is, is making sure your nutrition matches your output. Whenever you change your schedule, start something new, um, it's probably not the time to live in a deficit. Like uh, Kyle, pal, bam, bam, or whatever it is, who, who wrote our tip for this, our community tip for this week for Culture Nutra, the page is on there. You know, he talks about when you're preparing for a meet, don't live in a deficit. You know, if you're married to a weight class, you should be there 10 weeks out and maintaining it the entire time because you want to at least be training at maintenance so you're not adding that stress to your body and the whole night. And that's a great thing. He's like, unless you're a pro, you don't cut. Managing fatigue is the same way. If you have just started a new job and your activity level is higher, you may actually need to up your calories to match that output a little bit to help your body recover until it adjusts to the workload. It can condition to the workload, but you don't want to be in a five or 1,000 calorie deficit when you're starting a new job because it's going to deplete you. Uh, if it's an outdoor job and it's manual labor, hydration, sodium, you're losing a lot of minerals. Make sure you're taking a high potency multivitamin to get all those minerals in because that's what your body is losing. Stuff like that. Managing fatigue is going to come down to sleep and managing the, the micronutrient level as far as sodium, potassium, uh, magnesium is really, really important because your body's bleeding out those micronutrients. So it's having a hard time doing its normal functions usually. Yeah, there was a similar question on my story that was kind of related to where someone was asking if they were overtraining uh, or how to know if they were overtraining or just 
being a baby, I think is what they said. Um, and generally I don't think that people push themselves hard enough to overtrain. Like you would have to be really beating yourself into the ground to be considered overtraining. Most of the time it's under recovery. So like Trevor mentioned, like not getting enough sleep, um, not getting enough calories to fuel that. So if you're in a physically demanding job, you're likely pushing the requirements for your calories. So I would definitely look at calories first. Sleep is a big thing. Um, there, there's like mixed study. I was just looking at this the other day. There are like mixed studies on whether or not sleep actually impacts strength performance. Um, and some say that it doesn't, some say that it does. But personally, I know that when I am very tired, it makes it very hard to want to lift weights. Not so much maybe that my physical isn't up to par, like my physical might be up to par, but my brain is so tired that I probably don't have the uh, the gumption to push myself. Yeah, uh, task fatigue. I'm reading mm -hmm. about that in a book called Task Fatigue. And a lot of those studies, like Riley mentioned, are mixed. They're mixed because the timeline is mixed. Mm -hmm. A short duration of sleep deprivation, like one day, probably isn't going to affect you very much. And in right. some cases, it actually enhances performance because your nerves are like, bah, bah, bah. Yeah. the synapses are going nuts. But in long-term duration, it starts to deplete you because you never recover from the task fatigue. Your mind is always at a state of yes. fatigue and so forth. So these things matter. Uh, it's our granny. I'm sorry, I never remember her name, but she's so nice. Maureen. Maureen, thank you. You're so smart. <laughs> Do you recommend doing a pause on all reps, even if it's higher reps? Because she mentioned above that she just started doing pause bench press. And if you're going to compete in raw powerlifting, emphasis on raw, because the, the single ply and multiply touch is a little bit different. They actually have to pull the bar to them because of the gear. The pause is very different. It's usually counted very different. Usually oftentimes, as soon as they touch, they're given a press command. Um, but for purposes of raw, that's usually the make or break for mm -hmm. someone's bench is their ability to pause and control and hold it. So I'm a fan of pausing everything, everything. Mm -hmm. and getting better at longer pauses because I don't care what you can touch and go in the gym. I care what you can pause in a meet. And there are some meets where the pause command can be a little excessive or a little bit long, or they start recognizing that you're someone who sinks. So they'll wait for the bar to completely stop and then make it be motionless. And then everybody gets up bitching like, oh, they're making me hold it. Like, no, that's the standard. That's actually the standard. You just haven't trained to it. You rush into your rep. You don't, you don't wait for a start command. You don't wait for a rack command or a pause command. You just rush through because you want to have the PR more than you want to have the performance. And the performance on the platform is really what matters. So delay gratification a little bit, get really comfortable with pausing. Um, it's just one of those things that the more comfortable you are with pausing, the less you're even going to think about it when it comes to the meet day. You've made it autonomous. Yeah, if you, I, I usually program pause for pretty much everything. Like I expect there to be a pause for mostly everything. I will put touch and go in there, but I will specify that. But I think that the better that you train your pause, and if you train a true pause, um, I tell a lot of lifters I work with, uh, give me Mississippi pauses, like one Mississippi, two Mississippi, not just one, two because that's not the same thing as a pause. Um, because then if you get a long press command in comp, you won't be surprised by it. And if you get a short one, it's like a treat because right. you're used to pausing it longer. Dan wants to know, why does the joint support taste like pepper? It Question has bioparine, turmeric, yeah. and ginger. Read the in ingredients, so homeboy. It has pepper in it. <laughs> There's a high amount of turmeric in there and cumin. Turmeric is cumin. It's the same thing, which is an anti-inflammatory. Curcumin is an anti-inflammatory. And then the bioparine in there is black pepper spice, which helps the absorption. Literally, you just have to turn a bottle around and read the bag. It'll tell you why it tastes like pepper. All right, let me see if there's more questions in here that we haven't gotten to yet. If not, we'll other. So we got through. So let's get through some of the questions people have sent us. Okay, so one that came through that you haven't answered yet uh -oh. is uh -oh. my bench is weak and my shoulders hurt when I go heavy. 
Yeah, that just came through today. Usually, some of the questions that come through today. My, that's not that's not a very detailed question. <laughs> my bench is weak and my shoulders hurt when it's heavy. Um, so, it's hard to identify why your shoulders hurt without seeing inside and seeing. Please don't send me your videos. You're not my client. But if your shoulders are hurting, chances are your scapular retraction mm -hmm. is very inefficient and weak. Uh, I just put up a video on that, on, on training the retraction and the depression using bands around the elbows as opposed to in the hands so the lats don't take over. So usually if you're not able to create a base of stability, get the chest really high and the shoulders depressed and retracted back, you're not in a stable position. It starts to torque the head of the humerus a little bit against the, the tendons out there and causing that bursitis or that irritation. So that's usually a position issue and technique issue more than anything else. Um, I would hesitate to say it's an overuse issue because that's what the shoulders are designed to do. But if you're constantly repeating a poor performance in a poor position, then yeah, you are creating some inflammatory markers within the shoulder itself. So I would work on your serratus, I would work on your, your rhomboids and your mid traps to work on that retraction. And of course, always work on, you know, external rotations, right? The strength and rotator cuffs. Uh, dumbbell Cuban presses, face pulls, and stuff like that. And be legit. You know, I see people rush through those things with no intent, just whipping the weight back. What's the point, you know? Um, so be very intentful with your movement and work on the things that stabilize the scapula and stabilize the shoulder itself. If you're, if you're getting pain from benching and it's always when you're heavy, maybe you're going heavy too often. Maybe you should work a little bit more on volume and a lot more on technique. Most of what I see is the the lack of retraction, um, the weak serratus, I see that, that one's pretty common. I feel like that's like, so it's like such a neglected muscle group, mm -hmm. um, that people do. And a lot of the times what you'll see is when someone will come down to their chest, everything will roll forward. Like the bar will roll forward on them because yeah, they have forward. no external rotation and they have no stability from their serratus. So that's also going to put pressure on your shoulder joint if you're rolling forward. So you don't have control of the barbell, uh, weak external rotation, weak serratus, uh, weak retraction. So pretty much you need to be working on everything in addition to bench pressing. Like sure. You shouldn't just be benching. You need to be working on rowing. You need to be working on overhead press, uh, any dumbbell Cuban presses, torch presses. If something's hurting, it's probably because something within the chain is weak. Mm -hmm. You know, generally if you haven't had a direct contact injury, it's something within the chain itself is weak. Identify what that is and work on strengthening it. Yes. What's one piece of advice you would give to the power lifters <laughs> What's one piece of advice you would give to the power lifter you were when you first started? Oh man, one piece of advice. <sighs> That's deep. <laughs> um, I, would, I would say, and I feel like this is a little cliche, but I think it is important, is um, focus, like, okay, focus on your progress and yourself, but also stop putting so much external pressure on yourself. Um, I came into this sport a lot stronger. We've talked about this in our walk. I have came I came into the sport a lot stronger than majority of people. My first total was an 1100 pound total. Um, and that is really, really strong because there are some people that start with a 500 pound total. To put this in perspective, you know, the upper echelon is considered international elite. So it goes international elite is the upper echelon, elite, and then it goes uh, master's class total and so forth. Yeah, like class one, two. Yeah, exactly. And she walked into her first meet as an international elite total, which is not common at all. Yeah, the weight class that I competed in first, an international elite total, I think was just shy of 1,000. I think it was like 988, might be around there for 181. Mm -hmm. And I walked in, I walked away with 1100 raw. So I came into the sport very, very strong, but I had a solid 
athletic background and base um, behind me. So it's not that I just randomly picked up a barbell one day and like was strong and everyone was like, oh wow, like this is my whole entire life of building strength and being an athlete and whatever. So, but I came in really, really strong and that put a lot of expectations on me self-imposed i will add uh self-imposed and you know like it felt like i had to um boost up other people's reputations for me being strong so i put a lot of external stress on me to um lift to a certain caliber all the time that i would get so frustrated with myself um that i wasn't performing to a certain standard that i set in my brain and when I kind of took steps backwards, it was a little, it was hard to deal with. It was really, really hard for me to um, understand that, like, sometimes that's going to happen. Sometimes you're going to take a step backwards. Sometimes you're going to take some losses. Sometimes you're going to do worse. Sometimes you're not going to, sometimes you're going to have the best meet ever and then follow it up with the, sh like the sh worst meet ever. Like, that's just kind of how it happens. Um, but if I think if I would have learned to put a little bit less external stre stress on myself, for really no reason, like this is my journey, this is my individual uh, process that I'm going through. Um, these are my totals, these are these are my training sessions, these are not anyone else's. I think if I had done that earlier on, I probably, I don't wanna say that I would have be far, further along because I'm pretty resilient as it is and I kind of push through a lot of things, but I think I would have stressed myself out a lot less. Um, and it's something that I learned very, I, I probably learned it after like the first year of uh, competing that I needed to stop putting so much external stress on myself. And I got a lot happier and my lifting got better because I got happier and I was just there to lift and I just wanted to get better. And I didn't really care about, okay, well, I'm this weight class, so I need to hit this and I need to hit, I need to, you know, come down to this weight class or go up to this one or I need to hit this total or I need to blah, 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 or I should put on wraps. Like I wasn't so concerned about all these other things. I was just lifting. I was just having fun. I'm getting stronger. When I when I have fun, I get stronger. That's how it works for me. Like I love doing this, so I don't want to be so stressed out that it makes me hate it. You know. Mine are along the same lines. Uh, I would stress out because when I was younger, I was very guilty of program hopping and concept hopping and, and technique hopping. So Greg Panora put up a great post today about that. He goes, you don't know if a program works until you take it all the way through, test it, peak, and compete with it. That's the only way you can actually test and see if something works for you. And I wish I had the foresight to see that when I was younger because I would jump around so much, which was great from an educational background. I was learning a tremendous amount, but horrible from a performance background because I didn't stick with things long enough. And this truly is a long-term sport. So many people think in eight, 10, 12 week cycles, stop thinking like that. Start thinking three, four, five years. And like Riley mentioned, it took two and a half years to get that deadlift PR, but that two and a half year deadlift PR was also 33 pounds lighter, which is such a much significant, it's a more significant lift. You know, a 480 deadlift at 181 is good. A 485 deadlift at 148 is fucking amazing. So there's a big difference there in that pecking order. So it's one of those things where I would say, to my younger self, which is obviously very hard to your younger self, but be more patient with the program see it through for a year, two years. And that goes with the same with a coach, the whole nine, you know, when people hop around from person to person to person, you're not gonna get anywhere because you keep restarting. You know, a car goes faster when it has momentum. A bike goes faster when it has momentum. A skateboard goes faster when it has momentum. The key is there, stick with the momentum. If you keep stopping and starting, you're gonna get somewhere much slower than you would if you just kept rolling all the way through. Yes. Um, so these are a couple that we didn't get to from last week. Okay. Um, I liked this one. 
The question is, which is better, getting stronger or becoming better at lifting weights? Getting stronger or becoming better at lifting weights? Mm -hmm. They tie together. Um, obviously, the goal for a competitive powerlifter, not just anyone individual, but a goal for a competitive powerlifter is to get stronger because that's what we're measured by. You're measured by your total, but along that way, the more efficient and knowledgeable you get about the process and the technique, the more room for growth you're going to have. Mm -hmm. You can't necessarily put one before the other. You know, it's not like to say, oh, I want to get all my technique down before I compete. It's never going to work that way. It's never going to be perfect. It's always going to evolve as your body changes, like the 33 pound weight loss, your technique has to change. Your structure is going to change. Your positions are going to change. Your leverages change. You know, there was a lot more leverage at 81 for a conventional deadlift. And now the leverages are ideal for sumo. So it's, it's always a process of learning and refining and fine tuning your technique. But the ultimate goal is to just get stronger. And so that should be your number one priority is finding a way of creating habits, creating structure, facilitating the goal of just getting stronger. And sometimes that is focusing on improving your technique. I think that this kind of goes along with like your timeline of your lifts lifter. Like I think if you're a beginner lifter, generally the process should be just getting stronger. Um, yep. You know, like majority of the time, someone who's beginner or uh, novice, I guess, they don't have a lot of body awareness as it is. So trying to tell them, trying to cue them scapular retraction or anything like that, they probably don't know what that is. Uh, and that's okay. They're going to eventually learn it along the way. But in the beginning, the goal should just be to get stronger because in your first couple of years of powerlifting is when you have the most potential for large gains of growth. Mm -hmm. The further that you get in your powerlifting career, sometimes you're uh, scraping by to the nail to get five pounds. You know, like that, it just happens. So I think in the beginning, um, if you're a new lifter, focus more on getting stronger rather than being so anal retentive about the technique aspect of it. And then once you get stronger and you get to a point where you're kind of slowing down a little bit, then work on refining technique. This doesn't mean to just throw all technique out the window though. Like you should obviously still lift with some good technique and whatever, but being less focused on the technique aspect and whether or not it's perfect or looks like your favorite Instagram celebrity person, yeah. whatever is never match another lifter's technique unless you're that lifter's twin. Yes. Just that's the dumbest thing people do is they try and copy an outlier, an outlier, especially mm -hmm. they try and copy their technique. You're like, Oh, the so-and-so lifts this and this is how he lifts. Like you're, that's not you. That's them. Exactly. They're so-and-so. You don't have their genetics. You don't have their structure. You don't have their morphology. Stop that dumb shit. Yeah. So in the beginning, just focus on getting stronger. The technique will come along the way. Like you will learn those things along the way and you'll get more body awareness. Um, so it'll be easier to hone in on those techniques and continue to get stronger. But I think, I personally think that in the beginning, it's more important to focus on getting stronger Absolutely. and then add both in later on. You have, Like you said, you have your biggest potential for your fastest strength gains mm -hmm. up front. So that should be your priority focus is just getting stronger and then long-term refine. Okay. Would you say an individual has a set strength limit uh, without gaining weight? Yeah. I think I answered this one in my story from last week. I just thought it was a good one. <laughs> no. Uh, yes and no. Like, obviously, you have a certain genetic ceiling as how far your body can go on its own naturally. And then, of course, you can add in certain things that can maybe enhance that potential to some degree. But I think so many people don't even come even freaking close to their genetic potential because they don't, they don't, master every skill possible as far as structure, organization, nutrition, sleep, recovery, and treat themselves like an athlete. This is a volunteer sport. But so many people are quick to judge a plateau. Oh, I'm at a plateau. I haven't PR'd in three months. Bitch, please. <laughs> I've 
gone three years without deadlift PRs and then all of a sudden I have like, exactly, all of a sudden it kept shooting up and so forth. You're doing the work, you're learning things, you're earning the result of the process. Um, you don't know what your potential is because like, let's say you maximize your potential hypothetically, then what? Do you just stop competing because you're at your top potential or do you stop trying to grow? You know, it's like there's no finite amount of information you're going to learn and realistically, you're going to forget 90% more than you're ever able to even learn. You're literally going to forget it. It's going to go in and out of your brain. So, you know, there's no point even thinking of your genetic ceiling or your genetic potential. Just thinking of, am I maximizing everything I can possibly do to get stronger? And so many people don't even come close to their absolute potential ever. Yeah. Um, the body is a lot more resilient and strong than the mind is. And I think a lot of people hold them back, hold themselves back mentally more than anything. Um, like I've had people miss weeks of training because they had a cold. I've had people, um, not lift for a week because they had a torn callus. I've also had people get hit by a car and not miss their training session. Legitimate I'm story. Sorry missed hit by a car and not even missed their meat that was four days later <laughs> uh, yeah I've and he wasn't in a car he was on a bicycle yeah uh no actually this one was what was he the bicycle this one, uh the one on the bicycle he ended up showing it, he wasn't in the meat but i've had three lifters get hit by cars i need y'all to stop being around cars um, <laughs> but y'all need to be in a nerf zone <laughs> bumper zone but uh you know like the mind the mind is very powerful but it is also generally more uh, less resilient and weaker than the body. So I think that most people never even push themselves hard enough. Like this goes back to like the, am I overtraining question? Most people don't push themselves hard enough to get even remotely close right. to overtraining. Um, if you, like a lot of people will be like, I had a really rough day, so I'm just not going to go into the gym. I get it. We all have rough days. Um, That's a quitter mindset. I don't think I've missed a training session in four and a half years. Yeah. Like I, I even being, I've been sick. I have been, um, that's a personal choice, obviously, you know, I can't, I'm not going to tell anyone that they have to train when they're sick, but like I have been sick with the flu, possibly COVID, who knows? Um, mind you, we have the option of training at home before you freak out. Yeah. Like, Why you go to the gym like that? We yeah. can train in the fucking garage. So. Yeah. Um, I've, you know, I've been, I've had ripped open calluses. I have a blood blister right now. I've torn my thumbs open. Um, I probably sprained my ankle four or five times in the last two months because I just can't walk properly. So graceful. Um, you know, like, and those things, I'm never going to stop them from me training. Yeah, like, that's not a limit or a ceiling unless it's self-imposed. Oh, it's always self-imposed. Like, your body can pretty much handle it. It's your mind that gives up first. Like, we talked about with, like, our prep brain right now. Like, it's just much harder to get through the workouts because here, our brain is tired. We're telling ourselves we're tired. Yeah. Body Meanwhile, you can see we're communicating and talking and we're up and we're vibrant. We're not as tired as we think we are, but you can follow that placebo effect and nocebo effect of telling yourself, I had a rough day. Yeah. When you fixate on things, that nocebo effect gets stronger. Like if you're sick and you're like, man, I'm really sick. And you go out of your way to tell five people how sick you are. You magically get sicker because you can't stop talking about how sick you are. Versus if you just were like, I don't feel that good. I'm going to you know, get up, move in, hydrate, eat, whatever, you probably feel better because you didn't fixate on it. Right. So the mind is much more powerful. Same thing with like pain. Pain is more mental than it is actually physical. It, it processes a little bit different, but that's a whole different uh, answer to get into. That is a long drawn out thing. So we're not going to get into it, but most people's limiter uh, of their strength is mental. People will want to quit 
more than they'll want to see what they can do. Yes. So that's the mindset that's limited. The, the physical limit, limited, uh, physical limitations probably aren't even close. Yeah. The mental limitations are what hold 90% of people back. It's because they'll, they'll want to quit or stop or take a break as opposed to seeing what they're capable of mm -hmm. because it's uncomfortable. Mm, yeah, I Most people don't being like being uncomfortable and that's the difference maker. Like nothing about this prep for me has been comfortable. I've had a lot of issues come up inside, outside of the gym and I'm still in it because I want to see what I can do. If I have a bad meet, so be it. It's one meet. I have one bad meet. Big deal. I'll still go on living and I'll compete again. But to me, I'd rather see what I can do than worry about what I can't do. Yep. Yep. Uh, okay. How do you decide on RPE versus percentage for your athletes? I will usually mix bag that a little bit. I'll, I'm almost often, almost often, not all the time, but almost often I'll start with percentages and see how they handle the volume, the load, the recovery and so forth. And then as I learn a lifter and start to trust that lifter, I might give them RPE and let them do that. Um, I've had it bite me in the ass many times where people can overdo an RPE. Like just now, um, before I got on here, Angel was complaining all week how fatigued he was, but he had no bicep pain, so he jumped up his percentages on bench, and I'm like, you can't tell me you're fatigued and then push your percentages up because you're just compounding the fatigue. So I'm like, save it. Save it when it matters. Sometimes like that, RPE isn't always the best because you're gonna have some athletes who are gonna constantly overshoot the RPE. And unless you're in peak, I'd really rather you undershoot the RPE. You just need to move weight, move weight fast, and move weight well mm -hmm. with intention to get stronger. You don't need to grind every single week. And if you're doing that, you're just compounding your fatigue. Yes. Um, I kind of feel like I test the waters with these a little bit, kind of like how Trevor's mentioning, to where throwing RPE in on like random accessories. Mm -hmm. So maybe if I have like a pause bench press and then the second one is an overhead press, I'll give, an, I'll give you know, a rep scheme and then I'll give, um, I use reps in reserve, RIR, more than RPE. It just makes more sense to me and I feel like it's easier to get someone else to make it make sense. People tend to overshoot less with an IRR. RIR, yeah. Yeah. Can, <laughs> did you have two left? Yeah. Yes. Did you not? Then you overshot. Yeah. So um, that's just, I, I'll, if someone's more familiar with RPE, then I will write RPE. But generally, at 99% of the time, I write RIR. But I will give them a set and rep scheme and I'll put, you know, RIR too. And then, so when they send me that video, I will watch it back and yes, it is subjective, but if I can tell that there was no struggle at all and it's an RIR2, I'm going to assume that they're going to undershoot constantly or versus if I see them doing, you know, something that's supposed to be an RIR2 and they grinded out that last uh, rep by the skin of their teeth, then I'm probably going to assume that they're going to overshoot all the time. So I will do that kind of on a trial basis to see with... Um, I don't want to say less important movements, but the non-main movements, I will give an R RPE or an RIR first to kind of test the water, see how they handle it. If they don't handle it super well, then I will probably look to not give them RPE or RIR because I don't think I can trust them to make that accurate call for themselves. There are some people who I've had to give that to them because they're having a rough time um, mentally training and the stress of a certain percentage is kind of getting to them. So then I'll give them an RP or an RIR, but I will be very honest with them about how it looks to me. I'll be like, you know, I know that how you, you said how it felt. If that's how it felt, then I trust that you think it's, you know, this correct RP or RIR. But to me, uh, visually, it looks like you could have done probably six more reps. I'll be very honest with them and make sure like I will accurately ask them if they are pushing themselves. Um, some people I can tell that they are not pushing themselves and they're kind of just skating by, but 
it is difficult to choose and you do run the risk of someone undershooting or overshooting all the time. I would rather have a little bit of an undershoot rather than overshooting all the time because it's a little bit easier to push that longer than it is to overshoot and uh, like deload earlier, I suppose. So it's kind of trial by error. It is trial by error, but it also gives you a lot of information on the confidence or lack of confidence of the lifter. Some who are constantly overshooting are overconfident mm -hmm. and they're going to burn themselves out. And they're also the kind that have these huge expectations for the meet. And you're like, but you're not doing what you need to do for the meet. And then you have the other ones who are always way undershooting. And you know, that's not a very confident lifter. So that's what you got to deal with is the confidence issue. So it does give you some aspect of their mental, you know, facilities where that's at. That's, which is a good thing. But yeah, it's going to be trial and error. There's, there's no way to say this is the best, that's the best. Um, I've had some very high-level lifters, all-time world record holders, who absolutely hated RPE. They wanted to know an exact percentage, how much, what range it should be in, because the RPE makes them, like, they're neurotic. And they forget, was that a 9 or was it an 8? Was it a 7 or was that a 6? You know, they start freaking out like that, and it slows their whole workout down. They end up doing 10 sets when they're only supposed to do 2. Yeah. Um... Thoughts on velocity-based training? <laughs> I always laugh at this. I like, like this question. They, <laughs> I, I said, if you need a machine to tell you if you're moving weight fast or not, you're, you're probably fitting the profile of a serial killer. Um, you know, obviously the intent is always to move the weight well and move the weight fast. If it starts to slow down, then it means lower the load if you have more sets to keep going or stop the workout there. The idea of measuring velocity is to manage fatigue it was originally used more in team settings because you got to remember football players, basketball players, they have another sport to play. Their sport isn't lifting weights. They're using weightlifting to increase their power output and production for the actual sport. So you're using that to monitor their fatigue levels. Um, a lot of power lifters will use it to be like, oh, I have to move the bar at this speed today. And if I don't move it at this speed, I need to go down 10, blah, blah, blah. You don't need a fucking device to tell you that. You either flew with the weight or you didn't. If it's moving slow and it's above and it's below 90%, you probably have a high level of fatigue and you should deload. If it's above 90% and still moving fast, great. Things are working, they're clicking, keep going, you're fine. You, you really don't need a device to tell you that. It slows the workout down. It's not necessary. Is it beneficial for some people? Sure. If you have a very minimalistic program and all you're doing is the squat, bench, and deadlift and maybe one press or row variation, it can help you because you're you're wanting to make sure that you're maximizing every possible session. If you have a more normal workout routine, like, like Dave, Dave uses it. Dave literally trains twice a week. His training is like squat, bench, and then like bench, deadlift. That's all he does twice a week, very linear, uh, coming from like five by five down or some shit like that. So for him, measuring bar velocity lets him know his fatigue levels and if he can keep going up or not. But for most people who have a generalized training program, move the weight fast, move the weight well. If it's not moving fast, auto-regulate and come down a little bit so you can move the weight fast. Yeah, for the general population, um, there are exceptions like you're mentioning here where people can benefit from using it. I started out relatively quickly into a conjugate system and I have never used a velocity-based training device and we did speed work twice a week, um, sometimes three times a week or whatever. But I just feel like if you have to, if you're questioning on if it's fast or not, it's probably not. Like if right. you're like, I don't think that that was that fast, probably wasn't. So you probably need to drop the weight or uh, lower the accommodating resistance, either taking off a chain or uh, smaller bands or whatever. But I, I feel like video is better for this aspect because a lot of people will be like, oh, that move kind of slow. Then they'll watch the video back and it's absolutely flying. Right. Uh, and if it's absolutely flying, then it is still speed work. But it is not speed work if you're grinding into uh, the top of the rep. Like if you're grinding at all, it's not speed work. It needs to be super fast and quick. Um, not necessarily, you know, like the eccentric part of it. That's a whole different uh, ball game question. But like if you're not 
moving it fast and you need a velocity-based training device to tell you if you're moving fast, you're probably not moving fast. Yeah, Louis Simmons was one of the first to use the Tendo units to measure speed. And I've taken a seminar probably 11 years ago, 10 years ago. And he said, we used it for like eight months then we got rid of it. He goes, it slowed every workout down. They stopped focusing on the actual quality of the reps. They started focusing on checking the velocity every yep. single rep they did and freaking out. And he's like, it just was a hindrance, not a help. So they got rid of it. He's like, if you can't tell you're moving weight fast, you're probably stupid. Yeah. <laughs> him. Yeah. I mean, yeah, he, has no he has no filter. He has no filter. He has no filter at all. Um, okay. Let's see. Um, what has been your favorite part of creating a supplement company so far? Oh, great question. Honestly, the response and feedback from consumers. Uh, we tried to make it very fairly priced. We weren't going to have these crazy margins just because we have audiences and so forth. Uh, there are some brands out there that charge three and four times what the actual product costs because they're trying to be high end. Like an example of that is Onnit. You can get the same ingredients in every single Onnit product for literally half the price. So when we looked at it, we were like, well, okay, what's the average of these products and prices? How can we make them friendly and fair to everyone who's going to be part of our community? Um, the, the coolest thing is creating a community. That was important to us. So if you notice that the, the tips we share that aren't from us are from people who are already customers. When we did the lifter lottery where people can become affiliated with us and receive free product, it was from people who are already customers. I don't give a shit about a popularity contest. I'm not trying to find a, a lifter who has 10,000 plus following and say, here, I'll pay you to represent my brand because that's bullshit. I will never put somebody on the label or on the brand who hasn't supported the brand yep. ever. And I won't go back against that. Um, I don't. I don't I care how popular. You. <laughs> yeah. I don't care how popular you are. I don't care how many followers you are. If you don't support the brand, you're not part of that community and culture. Like if you're not sharing the posts, if you're not uh, contributing to the posts, um, if you're not using the products, I have no desire to make you part of that community. Just because you're popular, you can sell more bottles. That's never going to be me. Um, it wasn't about creating some like big windfall of income stream. It was about growing and enhancing community of strength that I love so much even more. And she has the same opinion. So that's one of the reasons why it's worked well together. Uh, it's also allowed Riley to be inc incredibly creative. Some of the ads that we came up with were, were really hilarious and funny and memes. And we're trying not to do too many of them so they still stay funny. But so we're trying to have three tips every week from a success tip, a strength tip, and a community tip to make sure we're contributing everyone to grow the community and make everybody stronger. And be fair to the people who do support the community by supporting them back. Yeah, I definitely think that the most exciting part of it was the amount of support that we received. And it's not not in the sense that we you know, had 5,000 followers overnight or anything like that, but the, the amount of followers that we do have are pretty loyal followers. Like I see them share our posts. They have made a lot of purchases. Um, they interact with us. They send us messages. They let us know what they want to see and like they, they're interactive with us and I would much rather have You know four to five hundred interactive followers and customers supporters Whatever you want to call yourselves and rather than five thousand followers and only 20 of them are actually like loyal So support is always big to me um, I've been burned a lot to where like I'm very supportive of other people in their endeavors and I don't always get that same reciprocity back. So when I get the chance to see that sort of support and it comes back to where people are wanting to support us as well, it's really cool. Um, I really, really enjoy that. And I, I see the people who are actually supporting us versus the ones who kind of just say that they are or actually aren't. And um, it's just cool to see that some people are really, really there for other people's success and are really happy that other people are finding success and not bitter about that. Right. I really enjoy that. So I think it's been really cool seeing who um, kind of comes to our side to support us.
Yeah, I keep I keep my circle pretty small because I like to know who my people are and I want to be their people. You know, I don't want to just be someone for everyone. I want to have my people and be their people and so forth and help them as much as they help me. That's really important to me. Reciprocity was something I learned a very long time ago that the more people you help get what they want, the more they're going to help you get what you want. And so I'm very big on reciprocity and I wanted to make sure that reciprocity was part of the brand. Yes. Do you have time for one more? Mm-hmm. Okay. Do we, do we answer the peanut butter question? <laughs> yeah. All right, Matt Berry. All right, Matt, non-plinary. You're going to be so mad at me for this one. Matt Berry wants to know, creamy or chunky peanut butter? Well, there's more to it. Well, should we answer one at a time? Okay, I'll, I'll go through them, but creamy. Creamy peanut butter, for creamy. sure. Strawberry or a grape? I don't like jelly. I've cooked with it. I've used it on meats and different things, and it's awesome. I actually don't like peanut butter and jelly together as a combo. I know it's so anti-bro of me and I'm super sorry. And my son loves it. We have strawberry jelly for him. He likes peanut butter and strawberry jelly if it makes you feel better. Yeah. I love peanut butter. Like, love it. Can't have it right now, but I love it. Um, but I don't love it with jelly. Maybe it's like a scarring thing from when I was sent away to sleepaway camp and all they had were like those Smucker's tubs of peanut butter and jelly. Mm -hmm. And I was starving because I didn't eat anything there. And so I would just eat the peanut butter out because the jelly always tasted weird and, and like artificial to me well okay obviously i'm a great person more than a person <laughs> you don't say purple is your color obviously no, no shit um i will take that a step further and say that i also love um blackberry jam i think blackberry jam is delicious um i really like orange marmalade on toast so um, orange marmalade you know that that's what orange chicken is made with so sophisticated eat, and debonair you eat, you eat orange marmalade <laughs> i love orange, like orange chicken. chicken love orange chicken chicken uh, and orange yeah what could be better uh also the last question is white or wheat um i'm gonna answer this one with probably sourdough mm, good choice i'm gonna take this one further um i like a ritz cracker <laughs> i don't ever eat peanut butter if i can help it on bread. Uh, smear it on a brownie, I'll be happy as shit. But I prefer to have like Ritz crackers and eat peanut that, butter. Eat that on meat I day. eat that on meat day because I actually love it and I digest really well for me and it gives me plenty of sodium and keeps my blood sugar stable. But ever since I was a kid, I've never truly loved peanut butter on bread as much as I love it on a cracker. It's so much better on a cracker and it's crispy. Now, if I had to answer that, if I had to have a choice, I'd probably go wheat. Uh, yeah. I do like whole wheat bread. Honey wheat is good. Honey wheat is fantastic. We actually buy butter bread. My son loves butter bread because it's sweet. So I prefer butter bread or whole wheat as opposed and honey wheat as opposed to like a white bread. Uh, white bread. It, the only time I really want that is if I'm making like a grilled cheese sandwich. I love wheat bread. All right, all right. So Matt's not mad at me. Peanut butter Ritz is awesome. Yeah. Salvation. I love. <laughs> I, love uh, I love wheat bread with peanut butter, creamy peanut butter, banana, and a little bit of honey. I'll admit I've never had fluff. My fiance gets so upset. Dude, marshmallows are the most overrated candy out there. I'm gonna say it. I don't like fluff. I don't really care for marshmallows that much. And we were just laughing about this when we were, we were walking around Target one day because it was raining we wanted to get our steps in. And they had just the marshmallows from Lucky Charms. Like you can buy a bag of just the marshmallows now. And I mentioned how much I thought Lucky Charms as a cereal sucked when I was a kid because my brother would eat all the marshmallows out of the box. It would just be basically like, what is that? Like a, just like a Cheerios. Yeah. Non-flavored Cheerios. <laughs> but I've always thought marshmallows are like the most overrated thing. The only time I like a marshmallow is if it's been like a Rice Krispie Treat. That's about it. Yeah. Oh, see, thanks, Melissa. She seconds the blackberry jam and orange marmalade. She, she gets it. 
She's my people. She's my people. Best hugger on the planet right there, Melissa. Absolutely. All right, so thank you guys for joining us for episode 26. Remember to reward your results along the way. Uh, constantly stay focused. Be intentional, which is a huge for both of us. And please keep supporting Culture Nutra and supporting the podcast. Make sure you share it. Leave a five-star review when it comes out on Mondays. That would be appreciated as well. It helps grow it. And hopefully if there's anything else we can do for you, please let us know in the comment section. We'll be happy to do it. Okay, bye.